Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Over the last few weeks, Russian military forces have been massing on the border of Ukraine. This has prompted widespread concern that Russia may once again seek to invade Ukraine. Back in 2014, Russian forces mounted a military campaign resulting in the annexation of the Crimean Peninsula and de facto control of the Donbass region of Ukraine. There has been no meaningful ceasefire nor a diplomatic resolution to this crisis, and now the conflict seems poised for escalation. On the line with me to discuss this unfolding situation is John Herbst, Senior Director of the Eurasia Center at the Atlantic Council and former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine. We kick off with a discussion about what this military buildup may signal, or not, about Vladimir Putin's intentions towards Ukraine, before having a discussion about what diplomatic and military options exist to deter Russian aggression. John Herbst is the co-author of a piece on this topic published on the Atlantic Council's website, which he references in this conversation, and I'll link to that in the show notes of this episode. And before we begin, a big thank you to those of you who have signed up for my special podcast series and newsletter on cryptocurrency and global development. This special series holds the premise that the most potentially impactful and innovative crypto projects today are being built in the developing world to address real-world obstacles to economic development and achieving the sustainable development goals. I've already posted two episodes in this series profiling some of these projects. This includes my conversation with a Zimbabwean fintech entrepreneur whose social impact investing startup is using new advances in cryptocurrency technology to support low-cost mortgages and rent-to-own opportunities in Mozambique. You can also hear my conversation with a social entrepreneur from Burkina Faso who is using blockchain technology to help provide smallholder farmers with formal titles to their land, which they can then collateralize as a way to enter the financial system. It is totally fascinating and cutting-edge stuff at the leading edge of global development, and these are just two of the projects that I profile in this series. There are many more to come. To access those episodes, please visit patreon.com slash global dispatches. And now here is my conversation with Ambassador John Herbst. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. 
it's clear that Putin sees advantage in intimidating Ukraine, or rather building up on Ukraine's border to intimidate not just Ukraine, but uh, the EU, NATO, and the United States. This time, you know, he did this in the spring, and that prompted a strong reaction from the United States, which may have helped persuade him to Putin to back off. He's done it again now. But it's interesting that while the U.S. responded strongly in the spring and strongly now, uh, the U.S. remains deeply concerned that Putin may in fact decide to greatly increase his aggression in Ukraine this time. And that's an interesting fact, that U.S. concern. Well, what does this military buildup look like? I mean, is there anything about the kinds of equipment or the way in which this military buildup was orchestrated that suggests to you what Putin's intentions might be or what he might be trying to signal? It, it's up to 100,000 troops um, on Russia's border with Donbass, with Ukraine. Also, about, I don't know, 200 miles north of that, maybe a little less, uh, no farther to the east, though. And those troops in, in, to the north, a place called Yelnik, could strike either into northeast Ukraine or into Belarus. And these troops are fully equipped. Tanks, armored vehicles, artillery, uh, trucks, everything they need to move quickly and with major offensive capacity into Ukraine, or for that matter, into Belarus. Well, the focus is clearly on Ukraine. And what does this buildup, you know, suggest to you about Putin's intention, like like the, just these fully equipped troops at the border? Well, uh, again, the U.S. government is deeply concerned that Putin may strike. I say may, not will. There are um, some analysts who believe that Putin is going to strike, and I can explain their reasoning to you. Um, my personal view is he is unlikely to strike. Again, not impossible, but the odds are slim. And the odds are slim in large part because the U.S. response to this provocation, as in, as in the spring, has been fast and strong. And so what would be the argument that you're hearing from analysts who disagree with your assessment? They argue the following. Putin is obsessed with Ukraine. And I don't disagree with that. Uh, Putin and they... they point to um, the quote-unquote history article that Putin wrote, I don't know, like three three months ago, which essentially says um, there is no independent Ukraine, the Ukrainian and the Russian people are one, and Ukraine's sovereignty can only be exercised in close conjunction with Russia. Um, and then you had Medvedev say something similar. Um, they will point to the fact, and I know the U.S. government also points to this fact, that some of the Russian troop movements uh, in this current buildup took place at night in a way to hide capabilities from us, whereas in the spring it was all quite transparent. So they see that as another potentially ominous sign. Then there's three, the uh, view that Putin is quote-unquote fed up with Zelensky. And four... This is the Ukrainian president. Correct, Ukrainian president. Whereas before he hoped that Zelensky might be willing to make major concessions, now he no longer um, harbors that illusion. 
And then four, that the West is weak. Uh, you know, you've just had the German elections. Uh, President Biden's poll ratings are very low. He just made that huge uh, mistake in Afghanistan with the disastrous withdrawal. So that the so that the West will not be in a position to effectively counter a, a major Russian invasion. So those are the principal arguments among those who believe that Putin will strike. So can we maybe pull back for a moment and can I have you explain how we got to this point? I mean, in 2014, Russia invaded Crimea and effectively, effectively annexed part of Ukraine. What has the conflict looked like since then and how has it evolved? Well, th- this is another reason why people who um, think Putin will invade large think that way. Uh, Moscow is the second most has the second most powerful military in the world after the United States. Uh, it's our only pure nuclear power, and its conventional forces are either the second or the third most powerful in the world. I'm not certain who's stronger, China or Russia. So Moscow has the military capability to win a major war with Ukraine. But Putin thought that he could achieve his objectives with a limited war, um, which he could claim he's not waging, which of course is nonsense, but it is done in such a way that people who don't want to acknowledge that Putin is conducting aggression against Ukraine can say, well, it's not a Russian war, it's a Ukrainian civil war. Uh, And if you go back to the spring of of 2014, you'll recall that the Russian-led, financed and equipped forces were achieving major victories for about a month. You know, their campaign began in late, in early April, and for weeks they were making regular advances, starting from the cities of Donetsk and Luhansk. But by uh, early June, uh, a few weeks after the Ukrainian presidential election, Russian forces began to bog down. And when Poroshenko became president, he was uh, formally inaugurated in the middle of May, or a little late May in 2014. Ukraine began a counteroffensive, and they were on the verge by uh, early August of taking back all of uh, Russian-occupied Donbass. When the Red Army came in, no, 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 no here confusion that these were local forces fighting and defeated the Ukrainians. That led to the first Minsk agreement, ceasefire. And the ceasefire was not really a ceasefire. And fighting continued, including with um, Russian special forces. And Moscow made some serious advances in the winter of 2014-15, which led to the second Minsk agreement in um, like February 10-11 of 15. Uh, that also established a ceasefire, which has not, never been observed, observed. There's not been one single day without firing. And most of the firing originates on the Russian side of the line. But still, uh, lines were drawn, and those lines have been pretty stable, with lots of shooting incidents, but not very much movement one way or the other since February of 15. And so that, yes. this, so you basically have like like a trench warfare at this point, Correct. right? Where you have those lines, you have shooting over the lines, you know, presumably in a 
in, in, you know, Russia is shooting over into the Ukrainian lines and presumably in hopes to provoke a response that they could escalate. Yeah, they're, they're, it's basically like this, this um, you know, almost World War One style trench warfare happening right now. A little bit, but obviously more mobility is possible if um, the sides wanted to try it. I mean, it, it, the technology is obviously far different than it was 100 years ago. And so it would be possible if one side or the other wanted to, to try and make progress and try and push the lines further in their own direction, uh, they might be able to do it. Although, of course, for Ukraine now, it would be very dangerous because Moscow is strong. There's no doubt about that. So we're speaking on Wednesday to December 1st. There is obviously profound and deep concern both in the United States and among NATO about Putin's intentions right now. Uh, what would you suggest could be done to potentially either a deter a potential uh, Russian military invasion of Ukraine again, and also potentially de-escalate this, this situation? Okay. Um, I think the article that um, Dan Freed and Sandy Verschbaum and I wrote uh, offers the answer to that. Uh, and we think the administration has gone a long way in the direction of the recommendations that we make. Uh, we think that Moscow needs to be told that if they launch a major invasion, uh, we will take clear strong steps against their economy, uh, maybe sector, excuse me, maybe go after new sectors of economic life, uh, minerals, for example, maybe go after two or three large banks, maybe go after also not just well-connected Kremlin officials and cronies of, of Putin, but also their families. In terms of individual targeted sanctions and sector-wide right. sanctions, potentially even you know secondary sanctions against right. uh, Russian banking, right. correct entities. And also, okay. we should be providing more uh, military equipment to Ukraine. Uh, we should provide more javelins, which kill tanks. We should pro provide stingers, which kill aircraft. Although Moscow has not used its aircraft yet, uh, because if it uses aircraft, it's, it's hard for them to say this is just a Ukrainian civil war. Uh, we should provide anti-ship missiles because Moscow has been using its navy to harass Ukraine. If they were to make a major invasion, conceivably they could be having amphibious landing, landings, either in the Sea of Azov or the Black Sea. Uh, we should think seriously about air defense like Patriots. These are sorts of things that if we were to give Ukraine relatively quickly, like in the next month or so, uh, it would tell Moscow that it's going to be a lot harder for them to achieve their military objectives. Not impossible, but harder. And with Russian casualties, which Putin wants to avoid, because the Russian people really don't want their boys fighting in Ukraine. Maybe just like to, to play the devil's advocate here, you know, so the NATO takes this escalatory action, the United States takes this escalatory action, starts, you know, building up Ukraine's military defense. Putin sees that as a direct provocation. Does that not want him or inspire him to want to initiate this, this conflict sooner rather than later? Uh, given, given the threat that Putin poses right now with the current deployments. I think the principal objective is deterrence. And so I think providing such hardware 
uh, do it quickly, do it secretly, and announce it after it's done serves as a deterrent. Because the Russian people don't want, again, their, their boys not just fighting in Ukraine, but dying in Ukraine. When you had Russian casualties in 2014 and 15, they were going home in leaden boxes without any markings. And the Russian government was adamant that the relatives of, the, of those killed in action be silent on how their loved ones died. So we know this is a liability for Putin. And yeah, sorry, go ahead. There's another point, too. This is the second time this year Moscow has massed forces on Ukraine's border. I think our response in, in the spring was very good, but not perfect. Uh, the response was very similar to what I described now. But in the spring, we talked about a certain set of military uh, equipment to send, and we did send us a bit. But when the crisis ended, we decided not to send more. And I think that was a mistake uh, for two reasons. One, if we had sent it, that would be a, 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 an indication to Moscow. When they pull stunts like this, they wind up paying a cost. But two, in terms of the current circumstance with the new massing of Russian forces on Ukraine's border, it would be better if that military equipment was, in fact, in Ukrainian hands and not have to be rushed there in the, you know, the heat of the moment. So we're at this, obviously, very potentially you know, disastrous, catastrophic crisis point uh, if Russia actually decides to invade Ukraine again. Is there like a potential de-escalatory or diplomatic off-ramp that exists? Are there opportunities that exist right now to perhaps lower the tensions, to provide Putin a way to save face, provide you know the West the assurances it needs that Ukraine's sovereignty will remain you know, as inviolable as possible? What well, diplomatic opportunities exist right now? I, I don't think we have to worry too much about Putin's saving face here, because he and other senior Russian officials have denied there's any Russian intent to invade Ukraine, right? So he could just order their for forces to disperse, and we could all breathe a little bit more easily. Now, there may come a day when Putin does need to have some some face-saving, like when he decides he really wants to end his current aggression in Ukraine. And in that circumstance, I'm all for helping him save face. But in this case, I don't see the need for it. Well, is there like a near-term diplomatic solution that could be, you know, that, 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 that's well, sort of lingering out there that could be harnessed well, to well, prevent, Here's you know, the point. Here's the point. You know, I've already told you I don't think Putin will strike. Others do. I don't. I think his game is to, again, derive concessions just by the threat of a strike. Uh, concessions from Ukraine, concessions from us, or concessions from, from European players. Uh, now, to my mind, that would be a serious mistake for us to offer concessions as a way to say, please don't. Please don't commit aggression, Mr. Putin. I think it sends all the wrong signals, not just to Beijing, not just to Moscow, but also to Beijing. Uh, but 
I have no problems, you know, with us talking with Putin. If, if, if he wants to talk to Biden, that's fine with me, as long as Biden says the right things. Oh, anyway. Um, how have key U.S. allies in the region, NATO partners, responded so far to this potential crisis? Well, um, most of the NATO allies in Eastern Europe uh, have very strong concerns about Kremlin intentions, the Baltic states, Poland, Romania in particular. And so uh, they believe that Putin may strike. They believe whether or not he strikes on Ukraine now, he's a menace. And therefore, you need a strong defense posture in NATO and East and support for the countries that NATO, that Russia is trying to control, like Ukraine, like Georgia. Uh, and I believe that those countries are pleased with the positions taken by position taken by the Biden administration. Looking ahead in the next few days or, or weeks or even months, are there any upcoming inflection points or anything that you'll be looking towards that will suggest to you how this situation may evolve? Well, you always want to see what troops are doing, especially during Christmas holidays. So that may be an opportunity to see if they're going to keep the pressure on during during the season. My suspicion is they will, but that's still something to watch. Um, you also want to keep watch, again, more broadly on Russian military activities to see if for, additional forces are being transferred into the areas we're discussing right now. Uh, well, Ambassador, anything else you wanted to emphasize or any sort of questions I didn't ask about points that you think ought to be made about this current situation? Uh, I probably should have mentioned this a few minutes ago when I talked about Putin's efforts to sort of wrest concessions via this buildup. Uh, there's, there's some concern uh, among analysts uh, like me with the, an article that came out um, late last night by David Ignatius, which mentioned something about possibly the administration wanting to get involved in negotiations in order to help um, get Russia what it wants from Ukraine. Uh, that is precisely the sort of thing that Putin might be looking for. Uh, also, there's right now a major battle going on in the Senate regarding Nord Stream 2. This is the gas pipeline uh, okay. from that's under construction from Russia, Russia to, to Germany. Germany. Yeah, correct. Currently on hold. It's on hold, but uh, it, it, it's been a, an amendment which would have put sanctions on Nord Stream 2 without presidential waiver authority past mm. the House version of the defense bill. The current state in the Senate, and there was talk earlier about there being a vote today. I don't think that's going to happen. But the discussion about this in the Senate focused on two amendments, one offered by Senator Menendez, the other offered by Senator Rich. And these are, uh, I should say, the, the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee and the ranking member of the Foreign Affairs that's Committee, correct. Republican Democrat. Correct. Okay. Correct. The administration wants to let Germany and Russia have Nord Stream 2. That's a very serious mistake. And that's why 
Biden waive sanctions on Nord Stream 2 in May. Uh, since then, the Russians have played political games with gas, and neither Germany nor the United States have objected. Also another serious mistake. That's why- say, it's probably like a bad look, though, to impose sanctions on your closest ally in Europe, Germany, even though you're intending to well, well, punish you, you, Russia. You, you, well, you've, you've just given the German argument um, yeah. for not, but f- there, there are two responses to that. There, actually, there are many, but the two are the most important. Uh, one, of course, is that we'd not be sanctioning Germany. We'd be sanctioning a Swiss firm, which is actually controlled completely by Gazprom. But the second is, it's not right for an ally to make a geopolitical deal with an adversary which affects the security of the alliance. So if anyone's at fault here, it's not the United States, it's Germany. Um, all this pipeline does is give Putin a weapon against other countries in Europe. And this is well understood. And Germany has offered almost nothing as to what it would do if Moscow did play games with gas. And Merkel denied that Putin was in any way responsible for current gas prices in Europe, which of course is nonsense. So, yeah, I mean, we, you and I may have different views on this, but uh, I think American interests clearly demand that this price, this pipeline, not not go forward. And just to be clear, as you said, uh, there is this amendment uh, in right, right. Coming back, in, coming in back Senate. To the point. Yeah, yeah. Right. The point is this: uh, there are two amendments going forward, the Risch and Menendez amendments. Although I, I just I just heard before I got on the call with you, that um, there may be a hold place on this. There's supposed to be a vote today, but that may be, now be stalled. Uh, but my understanding is the Menendez Amendment would sanction Nord Stream 2 if Russia goes large into, into Ukraine and takes out the Ukrainian government. And that, as a statement by itself, is not, not a problem. I have no problem with it. The Rish Amendment would be the same as the amendment that came out of the House which would put sanctions on Nord Stream 2 without the president being able to waive it, since he irresponsibly used that power once. Uh, The Menendez Amendment um, would actually be a weakening of the administration's already weak policy on Nord Stream 2, because it would only sanction Nord Stream 2 if Russia invaded Ukraine in a large way. Whereas in theory, the administration's position is that sanctions will go back on Nord Stream 2 if Moscow plays games with gas. Now, of course, the administration is denying Moscow is playing games with gas, which is another sign of weakness. But the the point I'm making is this um, bluff by the Kremlin may be utilized by the Biden administration, by senators, senators on the Democratic side who understand Nord Stream 2 is a disaster for the U.S., but don't want to oppose the administration to uh, advance Nord Stream 2, even though it looks like it's against Nord Stream 2. It's really quite amazing. Uh, Somewhat Uh, cynical, too. Yeah, I mean, well, we'll have to see how that how amendment plays yeah, plays out. There still is no Defense Authorization uh, yeah. Amendment Act, and, and we're into December now, which is very late for this sort of thing. Uh, so we'll, we'll, that, that's something to monitor. Thank you so much for your time, Ambassador. I really okay. appreciate By it. By the way, um, if you want something to annoy you, 
Yeah. Um, I, I, I published a piece in the New York Post late last night on Lynch Ring, too. Oh, well, I'll have to link to it. Okay. Okay. Good yeah. I'm agnostic. I'm agnostic here. I'm just okay. uh, I was playing the devil's uh, the devil's advocate. Okay, as here. you should, as a journalist, that's a good thing to do. All right. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Thanks, Ambassador. Bye bye. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Ambassador Herbst. And today's conversation was produced in part with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, and the views and opinions expressed in this conversation belong solely to those of us who expressed them. And once again, please do check out the new podcast series and newsletter on cryptocurrency and global development. This is cutting-edge stuff, really interesting to me. It's early in this whole iteration of of this developing technology, but it's really interesting to see how so many entrepreneurs, particularly in Africa, have latched on to this as a way to accelerate uh, economic development in their own context, in their home countries. Fascinating stuff. Check it out. Patreon.com slash Global Dispatches. See you next time. Bye.